0: This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is revolutionizing how investors listen to earnings calls and conduct due diligence. It's basically Spotify, but for investors. With Quarter, you can effortlessly search for any company and quickly gain access to their latest earnings calls, M&A announcements, and capital markets days. Plus, it's all absolutely free. Quarter constantly improves its product, and its latest update is no exception. Today, you can search for keywords like free cash flow yield or return on invested capital, and Quarter instantly indexes every company transcript that matches that key phrase. It's incredible. I'm excited to watch the Quarter team roll out more features to make my jobs as an investor even easier. And Quarter is one of the few apps I use every single day. I know you will too once you download it. So head on over to quarter.com download the free app on either android or iphone and start using it today that's quarter.com on the android or iphone store and you'll wonder how you ever invested without it before we dive into today's conversation i want to talk to you about mit investment management company also known as matemco the investment office of mit each year Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of mit's mission in order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimko has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org/global-investor. That's m-i-t-i-m-c-o.org/global-investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash valuehive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash valuehive. All right, guys, thanks so much for hopping on this uh, value hive q and a with doomberg. This is obviously an extension of my podcast conversation that I had with him um that you know I really could have spent another two hours just dissecting how he's created such a powerful publication business so uh, I went ahead and added doomberg as a speaker um as as kind of one of the co-host speakers here so uh once he gets hopped in, we will. Uh, start, um, start the intro and 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 really, if I'm if I'm doing a good job as a host, I am not really talking at all and just facilitating um, the different questions that you guys have for him. And so we'll give it a couple minutes while he's getting logged in. Um, oh well, there he is. So let's just go ahead and start right now. So uh, Doomburg, thanks so much for doing this Q and A. Um, a ton of people. RSVP to this way more than I thought so I you know can't thank you guys enough for RSVPing to this um and uh like I said before before you jumped on the uh the way they'll judge myself on doing this is as long as I'm talking the least and just facilitating different questions and adding people as speakers uh the better this is going to go.
1: Can you hear me all right before we dive in just make sure all the yep
0: yep i can yeah i can i i can can hear you well so i think what i'm gonna do first is i'm just gonna pause for like one or uh we'll do like 30 to 60 seconds and um if you guys have questions just request to speak and we'll take these one at a time and then what i'll say is you know you'll do a question maybe a follow-up and then after you're done just remove yourself as a speaker uh that way we can get more people going so i'll mute myself for 30 seconds 30 to 60 seconds and um Those that want to ask questions, uh, go ahead and add yourself as a speaker and we'll get this thing rolling. All right. Looks like everybody's a little bit shy uh, so far this afternoon. But, uh, but Doomberg, I guess I can, I can kind of kick things off with the first question. So, um, you know, we ended, we ended our podcast, I think it was like a couple weeks ago and, and I've had great feedback from it. Um, What has happened since that podcast, just in terms of, I think you've written a few posts um, the most recent one being the bed bath. And I think beyond the pale is just another one of those cool titles you had. Um, So kind of walk us through what, what you're seeing on the horizon, maybe some um, content ideas or, or, or essay ideas that, that, that you've got in the backlog.
1: And yeah, the biggest thing we're working on right now is um, trying to work our way through the European energy crisis. I think I mentioned this on your podcast about how that was the single greatest geopolitical event uh, in the middle of unfolding um, right before our eyes. And um, so we have a, a piece in the works um, that we hope to publish on Thursday, assuming I can get it. Full and finished, uh, written by tomorrow morning in time for the editor to have a full day with it. Um, And that piece is tentatively titled um, Dead of Winter. Um, And there's been a lot of action on Twitter about what the gyrations in the European energy markets mean for the future of the continent, both short term this winter and then long term sort of chronically. Um, There's been obviously some really staggering tectonic plate shifting in the geopolitical sort of globe and um a lot of uh a lot of people the european focus have been critical of us and others who have been trying to point out this growing fiasco for some time um even some accusing us of hoping for bad outcomes which is actually couldn't be the more opposite of the truth but uh, yes we have a piece in the works about european energy and then um uh, it looks like there's going to be an epic spaces lined up for friday afternoon we haven't announced it yet but there'll be um Bunch of big names discussing the future of of, uh, of Europe and and what the energy crisis means for Europe uh, on Friday afternoon. So I got that going as well. You know, life as a content creator, and um, of course, uh, curating content for Twitter. Getting this piece written, thinking about what our thread's going to be. try to put on another Saturday morning mega thread that we've been been doing recently. So yeah, lots to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no. There's no shortage of, of, of content ideas. And speaking of, speaking of content, one thing that's crossed my feed a lot recently is seeing these electricity bills from some of these European small businesses is uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really depressing, but it's also just staggering. Um, Some, some, some of these prices where, you know, a British bakery or some European bakery used to pay, you know, a few thousand pounds and now they're paying, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand pounds, or just something ridiculous.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the heart of what we're gonna write about on uh, in dead of winter, and and we're gonna um, we'll see if it survives editing. But the, the current format is um, we're unveiling what we call a duberg's law of, of anti logic, which states that um, the current slate of Western leaders can be counted on to take the worst course of action at every um, decisive uh, opportunity, and so. Um, we piggyback on some great work by Luke Groman in, in his uh, tree rings from last week, and he sort of lays out three possible outcomes for Europe. And using uh, Doomberg's law of uh, anti logic, we settle on uh, what we think is going to be the actual outcome. And, and um, I think what we're going to see is, um, well, I mean, this wave—you know, when you throw a rock in the, middle of a take, in the middle of a lake, it takes a little while for those waves to sort of, um, you know, get to where you're standing. And, and those waves, as you just mentioned, um, we're just now beginning to get repriced you know some of these um many utilities have sort of fixed prices for periods of time and then limited windows where they can ratchet up prices to try to offset some of their costs and um, we're seeing the, the very first waves of the european energy crisis hit mom and pop businesses um you know um, middle class residential homes and um, some of the prices that we're seeing are just outrageous and then of course um you can count on the European politicians um, in the same way that we could count on the U.S. politicians and Canadian politicians if it happened over here. Um, We believe you could count on European politicians to take the worst of possible choices. So we're going to see, um, I think we're going to see, you know, um, uh, we're going to basically, people are going to stop paying their bills and the government's going to get away with it, which is going to basically make it far more difficult to to destroy demand, which obviously when you have a supply shortage, um, ultimately... Um, price caps don't work, but we will see price caps. Um, we will see um, policies meant to hurt um, the energy companies that are trying their best to abate this crisis. Um, we're gonna see protectionism. I think you're gonna see countries like Norway and um, you know, the, the net energy producers are gonna make sure that their countries are fully satiated before they export any incremental electricity to the European continent um, proper. And so um, all of the worst possible behaviors um, are going to be on display. And, uh, and we're still, um, the Western world is sort of the least prepared for such difficulties. You know, we live such a life of luxury where the light switch always comes on and, and there's nobody living in the Western world today. Nobody's a bit of an exaggeration. There are a few people living in the Western world today that, um, that understand what, what it means to have no electricity in winter. And they feel that, um, many of them are going to find out and, and they won't put up with it. So there's going to be social unrest. I think that the Initial reaction of the leaders will be to uh, crack down uh, more rigorously than they should, like Justin Trudeau t- tried to do in Canada. Um, then they'll probably cut a deal. Uh, who knows? It's going to be a giant mess. Um, ultimately, there's not enough molecules to go around in Europe. You know, if you just look at the price action of European electricity in the last 48 hours, um, a mega spike up to 1,000 uh, euros per megawatt hour, um, and then crashing down today by 40 or 50%. Um, the magnitude of the intraday move is 10 times what the price used to be 18 months ago. It's just incalculable what's going on over there. And, um, and still I think people are sleepwalking into this crisis. And so, um, I don't think the current slate of, of G7 slash Western leaders has the faintest idea what to do, which is why I think, uh, Doomberg's law of anti-logic is about to uh, manifest.
0: Well, that's exciting. And I can't, I can't wait to read it. So, um, Again, like I said, guys, uh, don't be shy to add yourself as a speaker. Request as a speaker. Um, if you have any questions for Doomburg, uh, again, like I want to make this very active. Um, you know, very much less me talking and you guys asking questions. So, um, you know, again, I'll I'll pause for a couple more seconds to see if we can get anybody to request to speak um, and just and just have some questions um, for 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 Doomburg. You can ask him about writing, publishing, energy markets, whatever. Um, looks like we got a few speakers here. So first, one I'm going to add is Gordon Johnson. Gordon, I'm going to add you as a speaker, um, and uh, let's take it off from there. So, Gordon, uh, you are good to go.
2: Hey guys, thanks, uh, thanks for bringing me up, Doomberg. Thanks for the comments um, on price caps, Doomberg. It seems to me that price caps literally always lead to disaster because it basically drains out competition and just effectively leads prices higher. Um, am I missing something? Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, I, I Gordon, uh, good to hear you. Uh, I would say um, all the old terrible ideas are gonna get recycled, which is why, again, we call it Doomberg's uh, law of anti-logic. Uh, price caps don't work. Um, it's basically squeezing the balloon, right? So uh, the first phase is going to be price caps for and relief for residential. And then the small business owners who will have to take up the slack will cry foul correctly you know legitimately and then they'll get relief and then industry um will have to shut down and once industry shuts down the government will reverse course and then they'll basically just monetize the whole thing so uh like luke groman predicts um well he has a slightly different predict- one of the potential scenarios that luke Roman articulates is um printing fiat uh, to try to buy jewels and um that that's sort of what I think is going to be the base case. Like, um, it, it, there's a, it, one of the main thesis of the, of the piece uh, that we're publishing on Thursday is that we have uh, been, we've been banging this drum for over a year. Our first piece we wrote was last summer on, or maybe not quite a year, but 11 months ago on, um, there's a piece called Putin's Fools Rush In. And when we reread we it now, one of the things that stands out to us is that um, we framed the relative, um, macro geopolitical advantage as well but we radically overestimated the logic and sanity of the western leaders um, and they basically made the incorrect decision at every opportunity which we just assumed they wouldn't do and so we're not going to make that assumption anymore in fact we're going to go to the opposite let's try to imagine what the very worst possible decision would be and then make that our base case uh, because i think that's what's going to happen so we will see price gaps we will see protectionism um, we will see um, stresses and fractures in the european union like the germans uh, what's Estonia going to do? What's Latvia going to do? What's Poland going to do? You know, the, the, all of these countries have their own um, domestic uh, political, uh, um, you know, challenges and struggles, and, um, and so that's uh, that that's what we're going to see.
2: Hey, thanks, Dunberg. One, one last question for me, and and by the way, uh, your 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 content is amazing. Um, do you have a view on the role that? Western energy policy specifically towards renewables has played in all this. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think it's been, um, it's a, it's a combination of factors. So I think uh, too many intermittent sources of energy put onto a grid while simultaneously attacking, um, baseload power, such as, um, nuclear in, in, particular, but also, um, you know, fossil fuel based uh, power as well. well. Um, we live in this world where, um, our, our political leaders have no scientific training and, um, they, they, bathe themselves in platitudes and physics eventually wins and so um, to the extent that uh, everywhere it's been tried where you overload a grid with um, intermittent power like solar and wind, it inevitably leads to um, uh, higher prices, less reliability, um, rolling blackouts, um, you name it and, and it's the greatest example of course is Germany. Um, no country has done more to um, add wind and solar to its grid and to take out nuclear power at the same time than Germany, and look what's happened. Um, we wrote a piece you know, about Ontario and, and, and Chris, Dr. Chris Kiefer's efforts to keep the nuclear power plant open in Pickering called um, Malthusian Malarkey. Um, when Ontario shifted away from coal and towards nuclear and, and built up nuclear to be 60% of its grid and leveraged uh, renewable hydro and some wind to, to balance it out, um, they have the cleanest grid in the western world um and you know the economy was just fine ontario is a perfectly normal uh highly functional you know western developed civilization that's doing just fine um we, we don't see uh, the rivers in ontario uh, glowing green with radiation um it, nuclear waste is is a totally manageable issue and and so where it's tried where nuclear power is um is is used um, for the bulk of base load. Everything's great. And when you introduce massive amounts of intermittent power, like wind and solar, um, it destabilizes the grid. Um, and, and that's what we see. We see it in California, see it in Australia, see it in Germany. Like, it's undefeated. Like, it's not like it's close. The correlation is perfect. Um, and so, yeah, I think the um, infatuation with so-called green um, technology um, is is laying bare the fallacies of being led by people that um, have no training in physics and no understanding of basic science.
0: Awesome. The next question is coming from Jackson at macro Jack 21. I'm adding you as a speaker. Uh, so Jack, whenever uh, you're ready, you've got the floor. Hey, Jack, I just added you, you should be good. Jack, you there? All right. We're going to move on to Neely Tamil. Neely, I'm adding you as a speaker. Jack, if you get everything worked um, on your end, uh, just wait until after Neely asks her questions. So Neely, go ahead. Thank
3: you. uh, Duneberg, thank you for this opportunity. You know, I've been thinking a lot about board governance and, you know, at what point, will boards, corporate boards specifically, get a, a roll up their sleeves, um, man up, generally man up, and get involved here? You know, kind of in a didactic sort of swing, right? With how things have been swinging to the other side. Do you think about this? Do you do you have hints about that? Do you have hope about that? I mean, I, I think we are looking at the world similarly and not terribly optimistically about the current course we're on. But I guess I'm trying to take a a liberal arts holistic sort of bigger view of this and say, will we actually see corporate board governance step in and say, this is enough, move it back boys.
1: Uh, You can count us as pessimistic on the effectiveness of corporate boards. If anything, um, you know, if you're a corporate board member, um, what does that entail? You're probably making 250 to 400 grand, a year in additional income for four meetings a year. Um, And you're probably flown out on a private jet to go to those meetings. So it's always a nice trip. And um, pardon my sarcasm, but this is from direct experience um, with decades in in corporate industry. Um, And uh, your main objective is not get sued. You know, Um, the the management sort of sends you things for you to rubber stamp. And uh, most boards um, try to get along to get along. And in fact, um, if anything, um, the board activism that we are seeing um, by some of these radical environmentalists, for example, getting the board seats at Exxon Mobil, which then subsequently causes Exxon to abandon some very large offshore natural gas projects, which boy, wouldn't they be useful if they were coming online soon um, uh, for the uh, LNG supply crisis that we're seeing. But no, um, um, in fact, if anything, I think the relative pliability and weakness of corporate boards is being leveraged by the radical elements of the environmentalist movement to find another wedge point to separate um, sanity from, uh, from the policies, you know, the, the Malthusian anti-human policies that, um, that they so uh, that they're so infatuated with. And so I, I think if anything, we're right, we're fighting a a rearguard action on, Um, uh, on the power of boards in corporate America. I I don't look to um, that sort of seat of power for any hope for saner policies in the near term.
3: I appreciate the candor. Uh, I guess there's just still a little bit of an optimist optimist in me that at some point we will start to find, you know, if if ESG is in fact, you know, the directive that we've been given and we do directly advise boards. So we are trying to be, a voice of reason here that we could actually find relevant new G metrics instead of wholly relying on E and S. So
1: I I would say, um, I would look to the private sector. So actually, um, and I, I, I see a, a pro subscriber on the call who, um, I won't name him, but is an owner, you know, private, privately held, um, energy companies, you know, they, they have so much more flexibility because they don't have to, um, parade themselves around and and try to um, wash themselves in their ESG bona fides. Um, As a privately held company, um, you could focus on running your company efficiently, rewarding your shareholders, rewarding your employees and other stakeholders, um, and you don't have to worry about uh, pretending to care about these things and making glossy um, annual reports that satisfy some pension allocator to get you on some passive fund uh, for allocation, you know, if you're a privately held company, you um, eat what you kill and um, and you can run your company accordingly. And I think what we're seeing, especially in the oil patch in North America, for example, is uh, most of the incremental drilling and so on is coming from privately held hands. Um, and the public sector companies are so neutered uh, by um, all of these pressures to pretend like they care about something that they don't care about, um, that uh, it's just it's just a complete, uh, well, it's a shit shop. I mean, it's, it's the only way to say it. Um, Um, boards are, are feckless and, and weak. And um, their main objective is don't get sued personally and collect your check. And um, unfortunately, I think that's just an accurate measure of the state of affairs.
3: Thank you. And thank you for continuing to do excellent work. Thank you. Thank you for the question.
1: All right.
0: Macro Jack, you're going to have a redemption round here. I'm adding you as a speaker. Um, So uh, you should be good to go now make sure to unmute yourself and uh, ask away.
4: Hey, a uh, big fan of your work. Thanks for all that you do in the space. Um, just shifting gears quickly, curious if you uh, could just shed some, shed some light on a day in the life of being a content creator. Um, you know, what does your creative process look like? How much time do you spend producing work versus consuming and researching? Any tips for uh, new people entering the space? Thank you.
1: Sure. A great question. Appreciate it. First of all, the day in the life of a content creator is just about the best life um, I could possibly imagine. Um, I've said this before. I said it on Brandon's podcast, but I um, feel like I won the lottery of life um, in the sense that I have achieved uh, and the Doomburg team has achieved personal sovereignty. Um, we get to do what we love all day. And the words get to are, are really important to us uh, as opposed to have to. Um, and so the first rule is we don't um, write anything that we feel like is a slog or, or we're not thrilled to publish. Um, and so we don't have a hard publication timeline, which gives us the freedom to absorb um, uh, information and content from others. You know, at, at the highest level, there's precious little truly original content um, where you're not building off of somebody else's ideas. And, and we learned that very early on, which is the number one way to generate content is to consume a ton of it. And then if you uh, connect some dots from various content creators, it's, it's no problem to quote their work, give them a link, um, and then put your spin on it, um, which is always, you know, sort of um, what we try to do. If you notice in our Doomberg pieces, we, we are always quoting other people's work and, and making sure that we embed links and, and recommending people to go follow other content creators. Um, so, But um, most of the writing gets done between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. Um, for me, that's my sort of weird sleep schedule where I sleep in two-hour increments. Um, and I'm, I'm very productive early in the morning. It's difficult for me to write um, in the late afternoon and in the evening. Um, much more clarity of mind after a night's sleep. Um, and so that's the sort of first step as we get the pieces done. And then really important for us is, is, is you, to do content well, you need to have an outstanding editor and that editor can't be the same person as the writer. The analogy I would use is um, the old saying that um, a doctor who practices on himself, you know, it's a terrible, terrible patient, right? You, you, as a doctor, you go see other doctors when you have ailments uh, because you can't practice on yourself. And I couldn't edit um, the, the pieces I've written. And, and so having an outstanding editor that is not you, um, that is not afraid to you know, rip the piece apart, um, call it garbage, um, rearrange it, fix it, um, and so on is, is absolutely key. And so I'd say like writing is the first half and editing is the second half. And we put equal effort um, to both, uh, which I think is is really important. Great. Thanks, Duberg.
0: I appreciate it. All right. Next speaker uh, is going to be Lucas. Uh, I'm going to butcher your last name, Lucas Kermelli. I'm going to go with, I'm going to add you as a speaker now, um, so you should be good to go. So, uh, Lucas, you can ask away.
5: Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for uh, letting me speak. Dunberg, um, I've got a question for you regarding um, the draft conditions around the world at the moment. Um, I'm based in Germany, and we, we had some severe problems with the uh, River Rhine, which is a main uh, yeah, trade way for, for many, many commodities as well water level was very very low there so some ships basically had to um, unload some shipments to to be able to to pass through the river what do you make of these draft conditions and extreme weather events do you think this is temporary and these things will appear from time to time or do you think that the effects of climate change um, doing their thing here, and these things will um, happen more often from from here on.
1: Yeah, so the question of droughts is one that is um, not only an issue in in Germany, as you know, but also a a pretty substantial crisis uh, ongoing in China right now, as well as as the southwestern um, United States. Although I will say, you know, it's funny that you should ask because I was just pulling up some data. This morning, I'm thinking about whether to write a piece about the um, about the Rhine River, um, and I see that you know the the readings uh, for the Rhine River have recovered somewhat. I think there was some big rainstorms a couple of weeks ago in Switzerland, and um, specifically was looking at the levels of uh, at the Rhine uh, at Düsseldorf, and um, they have recovered back to. Um, think this is measured in meters. Yeah, so it's, it's over a meter as of today. But it's funny what you can find on Bloomberg. Um, and so I, you can literally chart uh, a seasonal graph of the, of the water levels as measured at the Rhine at various uh, stops along the way. And so um, I, I do think that um, one of our beliefs is when you are in a period of energy shortages, like we are now, chronic energy shortages, um, anything that disrupts the apple cart um, becomes front page news, You know, if we were in a period of energy abundance and there was ample supplies of natural gas and you know, um, France had done a better job of maintaining its nuclear reactor fleet, um, the water levels in Europe would be an inconvenience. But when you were in a period of crisis, um, any other domino that falls has a disproportionate sound when it hits the ground. And I believe um, there might be a bit of that playing out right now. Um, it is no question that the drought levels in Europe are unhelpful for two reasons. One, they are driving incremental um, demand for energy and two, they're making it more difficult to barge in coal down the Rhine to the power plants that consume it um, to offset some of the shortages of supplies of natural gas because of Putin's um, uh, geopolitical war against Europe. And so, but again, because it's only during times of shortages where each incremental mini crisis becomes a full blown one because you're right at that razor's edge already and the smallest wind can tip you over, so to speak. But uh, it does look like, at least from the charts I'm looking at Bloomberg, that the water levels have recovered from the lows and the crisis. um, The worst of the crisis appears to be behind us, but you're local on the ground, Lucas, and so I'd be curious if you agree with that assessment.
5: Yeah, uh, Dunberg, I actually wrote a little piece about that topic uh, a week ago, and I uh, fully agree with you. I think uh, the worst for, for this year is uh, definitely behind us. From a um, water level perspective, we had some heavy rains over over the last week, and temperatures, um, yeah, cooled off Lucas, a bit
1: as well. Lucas, what is the title of the piece? I could find it and put it in the nest for other people to read. Uh, Commodity. Uh, I will Watch. look at me email up. <laughs> if you send me a DM of the link to the post, I will put it in the nest uh for the listeners to have a read, okay?
5: Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Um nevertheless what what I'm what I think is also a little bit concerning is that um many many countries in the EU, uh for example Norway, um is quite dependent on hydropower, you know. China, China is, is the largest hydropower producer, and these low water levels, of course, lead to um, a lower efficiency in in, in production of hydropower. Um, and going forward, um, this is, this is quite a, a topic that is concerning to me. As yeah, we're on our way to the yeah, green transition and fading out fossil fuels and. If you're dependent a lot on hydropower and you see these um, falling water levels um, becoming uh, a regular thing, um, this would be quite concerning to me as
1: well. Well, That's one of the challenges that we're going to reference in the piece on Thursday, which is, of course, Norway is a major energy exporter to Europe. And because of the uh, drought and the the falling water levels behind their hydro dams, um, they have um, signaled pretty clearly that their intent is to limit exports before they would starve their domestic um, consumers of any power, which I think only exacerbates the ongoing crisis. But as I said, um, when you're in a time of chronic shortage, every little bump uh, becomes a wall that you run into because you just have such, you know, um, tight tolerances um, and 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 zero um, room for error. So it's it's a real challenge. And so whether it be um, you know, a power plant goes down because they've been running it too hard because they haven't done enough maintenance, um, or the Ryan levels, Ryan uh, water levels, or um, you know, um, Putin decides to play a few games and and quote unquote uh, do unscheduled maintenance for four or five days, um, or whether um, one of the U.S. LNG export terminals blows up, like we saw in Freeport. You know, each of these events, in the absence of a chronic energy shortage, might make the second or third page of the news uh, cycle for a day but now they become uh, rolling headlines because of the criticality uh, of the urgency of the situation that we find ourselves in, which is only sort of lays bare the uh, deeply inelasticity, the uh, deep inelastic price, uh, deeply inelastic price elasticity, uh, price of demand uh, for, for energy and how very small perturbations in supply can, can lead to skyrocketing prices.
5: Agree, um, thanks. Thanks to them both very much thanks Lucas
0: all right next question we have from uh, we live to serve we live to CFO I'm adding you as a speaker um, you can go ahead um, just make sure that you're unmuted before you ask your question obviously
4: sorry is that me hey, you there yeah yep that's, that's you good. afternoon um, first uh, thank you so much and, and doomberg to really incredible work you've done it's really been cool to follow you and watch you uh blossom in this environment. Uh Thank he you. he's on the call, so I don't feel like think uh it reminded me to ask, but I thought Mike Green's um talking about the 10 year um uh, T bond as being uh, sort of a ultimate there is no alternative asset over the next 10 years was really interesting. So I wanted to ask your opinion about that. And jokingly I'm gonna tell everyone on Twitter that he's an Elliott Wave guy. Um, and then on the writing note, uh, that's something I have a lot of interest in myself. Can I ask, sort of like uh, hearing you talk about editors reminds me of sort of McPhee's uh, writing is mainly rewriting. Uh, and I was curious if you'd expand on sort of your writing process and, and, and how you got to be where you are today.
1: Yeah, so um, I'll handle the second question first, and then maybe we can get Mike up because Mike is, you know, I, nobody can speak um, to Mike's thoughts, better than Mike, and I certainly wouldn't want to uh, to uh, to try to do that. But um, you know, the the journey for me personally was um, I, I was a trained scientist, and I had spent um, several decades uh, in the science field um, in industry, working on um, predominantly energy-related projects. Um, a lot of renewable energy, actually, um, which some might find ironic, but um, did a lot of work in that space. And um,
6: and one of the things that sort of
1: um, differentiated uh, my career was 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 this ability to um, to to explain complexity, uh, um, especially say complexity, to uh, non scientists who might be investors. And so um, when you're working in a publicly traded company that is um, based on technology. Um, the ability to explain technology to non-scientists is uh, is an important um, skill, and and being able to do that uh, was a big big part of the reason why I was able to have some success in my career, and I really enjoyed it. You know, the writing the concise one or two page white paper that describes why a certain technological breakthrough uh, is worth investing in, or more often, the case when uh, outside inquiries would come in about um, the company investing in certain technologies, explaining to our non scientific investors why it is that we should take a pass uh, was just as important. Um, and so that was always really fun to do. It, it differentiated me in my career. Um, and then when I decided to leave corporate America and, and start a, a bespoke consulting firm um, with what is now composed of the Dunbar team, um, that was a big part of our core offering. You know, we could quickly analyze technical complexities for wealthy family offices or C-suite executives and and describe to them sort of the essence of the issue very quickly. And and then um, once COVID hit, um, you know, we lost a big chunk of our business and reinvented ourselves helping content creators run their businesses better. And then the next logical path from there is is quite simple, which is, you know, I had this passion for writing. Um, Another member of the team is just an outstanding editor. We've learned the content creation business inside out by helping people run their businesses better why not just start our own, um, do our own, um, follow all, all of our own advice and, and build something from scratch, which is what we ended up doing um, with, with the Dunberg brand. Um, and so hopefully that answers that part of your question. Um, to your question about my green and, and the tenure, um, as a general rule, when it comes to complex financial topics, um, I, I, I both listen to, um, try my best to understand and then believe everything that, that Mike Green said. So that's, that's pretty much uh, my, my, my answer to that question.
4: I appreciate it. And I'll uh, drop down and, and wait for him to come on. If he'd consider addressing it, that would be great. If not, I'll just listen to the space again. But I thought it was a really interesting take. Thanks again. All right, next question we have comes from Data Before Drama
0: at Eddie Davidson. Eddie, I'm adding you as a speaker. Um, again, just make sure that you unmute yourself before you ask a question.
1: And before he goes, I'm just going to add Lucas's paper, which I just tweeted out. Um, Perfect. Under the Doomberg account, I've added it to the Nest, so you should be able to see it pretty soon. I've also added our latest piece for people that want to get a sense for what we write about. Um, not really apropos to energy, but um, we wrote a piece about mm-hmm. Bed Bath & Beyond, as you, as you mentioned earlier.
0: Cool. All right. Eddie, go ahead. Where's yours? All right, Eddie, uh, you added you as a speaker, so um, you're free to ask a question.
1: Yeah, you probably have to unmute yourself, Eddie.
0: All right, let's move on to Dale Wen. Dale, I'm adding you as a speaker. Uh, Eddie, if you ever get it figured out, just wait till uh, Dale finishes his question, then I'll, and then I'll um, get you right back in. So, um, Dale, looks like you're connecting. Uh, you can go ahead and ask your question. Hey Dale, I think you're muted. You got to uh, unmute before you ask your question. All right. Yeah. Challenging. <laughs> All right. So let's see here. Let's add Brian Babbage. Brian, I am adding you as a speaker. Uh, let's see if third time's a charm. Brian, the floor is yours.
2: Hey, yeah. I just had a, a question on the, on the writing side and kind of, uh sort of news intake side um, I've noticed that between uh, you Doomberg and a few other folks it, it feels like reading kind of legacy weekly or monthly type publications like The Economist um, I mean it, it honestly feels like it's reading your stuff but but uh, you know six months later so I, I wonder how you uh, you kind of think about those types of news sources versus um maybe that daily versus a Twitter versus a Substack. And then if you still find value um I guess in those in those publications, since they, they obviously still have a, a massive reach. Um, but it just feels so stale um a lot yeah. of times when, when reading.
1: The word I would use is hollow.
2: Um
1: and um so uh, we read almost no legacy media of that type, you know, the Forbes the um, Time magazine or The Economist um, I think that's that's very much a dying um, a dying business um, I, I there are some really great people at legacy um, sort of quote-unquote legacy news institutions that we read um, every chance we get um, and and we still subscribe to the big sort of newspapers that produce dailies like the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and obviously Bloomberg and Business Insider, to a lesser extent, um, but like Javier Blas at uh, at Bloomberg, you know, if we were his agent, um, we would <laughs> he would be doing far better financially um, than working at Bloomberg. I, it's just, uh, and I just think um, that's a trend that uh, that is irresistible to the best content creators. Like um, people will um, pay for and support content creators that they love um, that provide real value that are quick and dynamic. And look, we, we, we hold ourselves to a high editorial standard, but we wouldn't say that we're, you know, we're the equivalent of a, of a newspaper where you have sort of trained where we consider ourselves citizen journalists, not professional journalists. And so that, at the same time allows us a lot of freedom, but, um, I just don't think that the, the broad audience, um, the riches are in the niches. This is a piece we wrote several months ago in one of the, the work of my life pieces. Um, You know, you don't have to find all that large of an audience to make a living doing what you love um, if you can get as good at it as you can and and have a mindset of continuous improvement. Um, I just think the the old way of doing media, um, I can't watch TV. Like, who could watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News? Pick your favorite, whatever your political lens. It's just predominantly, it's just mostly gibberish. I mean, it's just um, high level, no depth. Click date. and there's a bit of a revolt against that. You know, um, some, of the, like, uh, some of the best content creators that we subscribe to, I, I would guess that we probably pay for 30 to 40 content creators. Um, like, if somebody's good, we just pay for it. Like, it's just part of the cost of doing our business. Um, so, I would much rather read Kevin Muir's latest piece um, than pick up a copy of The Economist. Oh, it just—it just, it just can't compete. Like it's so far gone. It's like—it's like Twitter. Um, the speed of information and the—the—the the, the amount that you can learn, the access to experts, like just the Twitter spaces we had um, the other day with George Noble, or even last night. You know, Mike Mike Green, who's here, hosted a Twitter space, and it was just so phenomenal to be able to interact with diverse experts um, from all over the world. And to be able to, you know, you know, live Q&A, like it's so dynamic. Um, it's so compelling. And, um, you know, we, we have an amazing array of subscribers from all over the world. We get inbound all kinds of tips on stories. Um, our Twitter DMs are filled with experts who can't tweet and and can't write and can't express their views, but can uh, are happy to be sort of off the record consultants for us so that we can get the true story as what's going on. And, and um it's just really, really dynamic. It, 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 it's kind of like, you know, we did this piece on the last work of my life, piece, um, Twitch Master. We talked about um, Nakamura, the famous chess player who's become sort of a, a social media star and uh, makes way more money on Twitch um, streaming uh, his various Blitz games than he would ever make as a, as a professional chess player. And he's a phenomenal chess player, top four or five chess player in the world. Um, but he is sort of skating to where the puck is going. Um, and I think the legacy media, like the Economist and Forbes and, you know, pick your favorite that's, that's, I mean, they'll always be around, um, but they are uh, quickly fading into irrelevance.
0: Awesome. All right. Great question. Um, next I'm going to give Eddie Davidson another chance. So, um, had, yeah, let's do it. <laughs>
1: My guess is Eddie is trying to do this from a computer.
7: <laughs> My guess is Eddie. Eddie is struggling. Um, Eddie. <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm there. He is. is. I'm here. I'm not sure what was going on. Every time you guys would try to get me and nothing happened. And I've done this before. I know how to turn the mic on. It wasn't that. Anyway, uh, love the content, Doomberg. Uh I want to refer back to uh, half a dozen speakers or so. The the uh, the uh, speaker who mentioned. or or ask Dunberg's opinion on why, when or if will boards, uh, corporate boards come in and try to right this ship, turn things around. Uh, If she, if you haven't read uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's book, Woke Inc., it's sort of the definitive work on this. In fact, I put it at uh, my favorite book of, of 2021. And he does a deep dive into this and gives you all of the, uh, uh, all of the detailed reasons on why they are doing what they are doing, you know, why these uh, why the the proclivity toward the eco romanticism, uh, the whole idea of, you know, minds being particularly susceptible to, to monocausal views of these complex problems. And then you. You impose an emotional narrative that becomes the answer, whether it's a good answer or not. And that's the kind of thing that that I think we're seeing. I think that's our biggest problem. I read uh, Emmett Penny's book or uh, piece of Dunberg that you recommended about the nuclear thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's a good example of that. I mean, it goes all the way back to Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda's movie in the seventies, which or eighties, whenever it was. You know, again, you've got this emotional comparative narrative, uh, emotional compelling narrative that that's driving a lot of this stuff. And these corporate board members are, are, I think, are, are it's not their place. Like you said, they're just concerned about not getting sued. So anyway, that's my thought so, on it.
1: I'll tell you a story. So I, when I was up and coming. In the corporate world you know you have this um this vision of the boardroom as this secret place where all the wise people congregate <laughs> right. and um, some secret information is exchanged and the wise people in that room um you know put their heads together and come up with the very best possible strategies as they lead these tens of thousands of employees and i can tell i can tell you that um I I have a distinct memory of the first time I ever pitched a public company board and uh, the amount of work that I did and preparation and dry runs and research and, you know, tree diagram of possible questions. And what would my answer be? You know, because it's a big deal as a young aspiring executive to get, you know, tapped on the shoulder and say, come and speak to the board. I've never been so underwhelmed in my life. I mean, um, it it was depressing, actually. I, I remember having a conversation. Uh, with my with my wife, when I got home, I was like, I, there's got to be more." Like, where is like what I've seen behind the curtain, and um, it it was uh, surprisingly pedestrian. Um, it, this is not to to place the hopes of future society uh, in the hands of uh, relatively feckless um, corporate boards. This is basically just a giant country club where people get flown around the country and um, and make a three quarter million dollars a year doing nothing
7: damn good description and i'll make a comment then get off uh during my legal career which spanned five decades i represented lots of corps and and because of the you know attorney client privilege won't allow me to speak to some of these things but i you know you've got a story i could tell you stories but i can't but yes you're not underestimating or overestimating the sort of disappointing uneventful things that happen and uh Yes, it's this idea that, yes, that the private sector and corporate boards will move forward and try to turn some things around and make some sense out of this. But no, I have, I have no I have no confidence that that will ever happen. Well, I'd anyway, would the,
1: the privately held subset of the private sector is far more likely to do rational things and to be more nimble and responsive. But the, I, um, I agree. Publicly traded companies are a lost cost.
7: Exactly. I agree with that 100 percent. Thank you.
0: All right, next question is Devin uh, Lassar. Devin, I'm going to go ahead and add you as a speaker. Again, uh, make sure to unmute
8: yourself and ask away.
0: Devin, you there? You got to unmute.
8: Yeah, it, cu- it cuts out when you pr- promote somebody. I'm here now. Thank you. I uh, got it. Yeah, uh, I want to well, start off by saying thank you for hosting this space, Brandon. Uh, fantastic. And, and Doomberg, thanks, thanks for doing the Q&A. Um, a few months ago, I finally launched my own Substack, uh, inspired by Doomberg, Some of your pieces, I know I've mentioned to you in private how much I enjoy your "The Work of My Life" pieces. And when, when I launched my Substack, I really had no no goals, uh, no expectations other other than you know maybe getting some harsh criticism on my own thinking and being able to refine my own ideas. Uh, Instead, I've gained some considerable traction and I've had some fund managers reach out and even a retired CEO uh, of a company I covered. Um, And I'm realizing that those types of connections are invaluable and are are really what what I'm looking for out of this. Um, So so my question is regarding content creation. Um, I I know, Doomburg, you have a team that supports you. I'm just you know, a modest one-man operation that's doing this casually in my free time. W- what advice would you have for somebody in my position for optimizing process and specifically balancing quantity versus quality? And er- early on in terms of building an audience, uh, was there anything you found most impactful for reaching that, escape velocity beyond uh, modest linear growth for your uh, readership? Thank you.
1: Yeah, I, I would say, um, it's a great question. And um, it is hard to do it as a one, one person. Team. We're a very small team, I should say. It's not like we have um, a dozen, uh, <laughs> dozen people on this operation. I like to joke that you could count them on one hand and have uh, several fingers to spare. Um, but not being alone is absolutely key. And so um, one thing that I would advise is just find an editor on Fiverr or somebody that you can trust. And, um, and if you're willing to invest a few bucks to make sure that um, you have uh, an editor that you build up and trust over time to interact with, um, that that's incredibly valuable. Um, as it pertains to uh, reaching escape velocity, as you call it. Um, We give this a lot of thought, you know, as I described on the podcast with Brandon, we built Doomburg through the lens of what we call the five pillars. Um, Those five pillars are brand, channel, technology, demand creation, and operations. Um, And we gave a lot of thought to each of those five pillars. But most importantly, we overlaid across those five pillars a a mindset of continuous improvement. Um, And so one of our expressions uh, is if we can measure it, we can optimize it. Um, and we measure a lot of stuff. Um, And then if you notice that doing certain things on Twitter work um, and doing certain things on Twitter don't work, um, do more of the former and less of the latter. Um, When you think about demand creation for a content creator or any business, um, you know, if if you're just going to buy an ad, let's just say you want to buy eyeballs, um, there's a price for that ad, there's an effectiveness for that ad, and what you're really buying is an impression. Well, on Twitter which is the, the most terribly run business in the world, given the value that it, 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 it creates for uh, people who are willing to learn how to use it, you can create your own impressions. Um, and you know, the, the sort of marketing funnel of impressions leads to engagement, leads to click-through, leads to email sign-up. The subscriber is a real funnel. And yes, you lose most people at every gate, but if you have um, a giant pile of impressions at the front end, it's going to spit out a reasonable number of subscribers on the back end, and um, we focus heavily on Twitter. Twitter is the main engine of, of our demand creation machine. Uh, you'll notice that uh, we're very active on Twitter, um, twenty to twenty five tweets a day, retweeting others. Um, I just posted your latest uh, Substack into the nest. Um, for those that are listening, if they want to check out your work, um, you know you can measure your impressions. And so the, the magic metric that drives Doomberg is Twitter impressions per day, which is a number that we measure. Um, we have goals against that. Um, we've, we've realized some great growth. Um, and if you can, can um, and, and the way to do that, by the way, is to treat Twitter as a separate outlet for original content. It's not just a place where you announce your latest Substack and hope people come over and see it. That's not enough value. You have to give value for value. Um, and so we create original content for Twitter. Uh, and then we occasionally remind people that there's more value to the right. Uh, and we make it easy for them to go there. Um, so that's the, the, you know, if you asked me, um, we're joking today. And um, we've had a nice bump in followers in the last four days because Macro Alf was a great guy and we've exchanged notes all along the way when we were both much smaller. Um, he put out a, a great thread this weekend naming a bunch of accounts that he thinks are must follows. And he was nice enough to include Doomberg um, in that list. And we saw a substantial bump in our followers. And I was joking with uh, with the editor of Doomberg just an hour ago. Um, in the first four months of Doomberg on Twitter, I think we we ended month four with 7,900 followers uh, in change total. And in the last four days, we've added 8,500 um, just because of largely that macro ALF tweet. And also we put out a nice thread on, on Saturday. And so we've truly reached that that escape velocity, which is just phenomenal. It's it's really humbling. It's It's amazing. It's thrilling. It's um, it's it's wonderful, but it came through you know thousands and thousands of tweets, uh, original content, branded content, um, studying the data, uh, understanding what works, what doesn't work, customizing our approach both for results and for our work style. Like we're not we're not we don't schedule tweets, and and we don't you know um, we try to make each tweet sort of spontaneous and and original and. And and consistent with the brand, but um, we have a proactive strategy for Twitter that is separate to uh, our our strategy for Substack and for our writing. Now, you want one to be just as good as the other. So, if you convince people to go to your Substack and the quality of your Substack isn't as good as the tweets might imply, then then that's a failure mode, right? And so you you want everything to be on brand uh, all along every node of your funnel.
8: Yeah, that's all absolutely gold uh, as really helpful. Thank you so much and look forward to continuing to follow your work. Thanks.
0: All right. Next question is going to be from Klaus Finn Uh, at Klaus Finn. I'm adding you as a speaker, Klaus. uh, There appears to be some sort of delay between when I add people as a speaker and then when they can speak. So just make sure you unmute yourself and ask
9: away. Uh, Yeah. You guys hear me? Uh, Hi, Doomburg. It's been awesome to follow you. I've been following you for about a year uh since you wrote about a fertilizer uh crisis um and as a farmer from norway we uh, saw this happening starting last summer um and now we're really feeling the um, effects of the crazy energy policies in norway Uh, we do rely heavily on hydro and electricity for for, uh, our industry but also for household heating and um um, by looks of it uh, the, the water levels are really low uh, in our batteries uh, not caused to a drought as uh, I think uh, Lucas here said earlier uh, but because we are exploring uh, huge amounts of electricity to Europe uh, and in effect we now have uh, 10 to 15 times higher electricity bills in southern part of Norway as we do in the north because the grid doesn't reach from the north uh, to the South and down to the continent. So, uh, people are really st- starting to feel the, the effects of the, um, the energy crunch here uh, in Norway. Um, my, my question really is, uh, if there was to be a huge shift in policy in, in Europe and, uh, focus on nuclear energy, how quickly could that, uh, come onto the grid? Are we looking five years, 10 years? Uh, or, yeah, anything so, in, in that effect?
1: It's a great question. Um, so anything can be done quickly with the right level of political support. Um, the barriers to implementing the technology are predominantly uh, regulatory and legal, you know, uh, nuisance lawsuits and so on. Um, so what is missing is, of course, political um consensus. And, um, and we don't see that changing anytime soon. You could certainly make a big impact in five years. Um, I saw a, a stat where all of the reactors that were built in Japan, the average time uh, from breaking ground to um, <clears throat> first electricity produced, I think was 3.8 years. But more importantly, I think um, embedded in much of the energy uh, prices that we're seeing around the world is a political risk premium Let's call it the, um, you know, the, the, the idiocy penalty, <laughs> to, to, to use a, a crass word. Um, the signaling power of a united front of serious Western leaders rolling up their sleeves and saying, okay, enough bullshit. We're actually serious about trying to solve this problem would cut the price of energy in half um, overnight. Uh, I've said this on other podcasts, I believe with Grant Williams. Um, most notably on This Week can Doom. Um, Joe Biden holds a press conference tomorrow with the CEOs of every major oil and gas company in North America and um, pledges his commitment to work through uh, regulatory uh, problems and to um, you know, uh, do whatever he can to get um, uh, oil and gas flowing again so that we can drive the price of energy down so that we can really hurt Putin in the wallet. Um, I think you would see $30 off the price of oil. I think you'd see natural gas in, in Europe cut in half. Um, there's just the market is pricing in an enormous amount of risk, uh, and it's political idiocy risk. Um, and by the way, um, the market is right. We 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 don't have much evidence of serious leaders uh, willing to step up and do what's necessary. Uh, and so until we do, um, unfortunately, uh, more pain ahead. And and I I totally concur with you on the 10x increase in in electricity prices. Our DMs are filled with individuals sending us pictures of their electricity bills. Um, and this is just the beginning, by the way, that those prices were probably set um, at average costs three, four, five, six months ago. The, the, the latest mega spike in, in energy that has befallen Europe will we'll take several months to be reflected in the power bills you're about to receive. And so, um, you know, this is the, the piece Dead of Winter that we're publishing on Thursday. Like, I, I, I don't see a path out yet. Um, the idiots are still in charge. Um, and, and what is the true political mechanism to remove them? The average person... And Europe doesn't think there's a problem or doesn't yet know there's a problem or believes that the problem is not enough green energy um, literally the the uh, at least the finance Minister of Germany was quoted in the Financial Times three days ago saying nuclear is not the solution it's the problem um, we have a long way to go and a lot more pain to suffer before we get the sort of clearing political price of uh, and I don't know what that looks like is it revolt uh, people is advised um, But we've said many times on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. Um, And what we're seeing with the Dutch farmers, I'm sure you're very aware, um, is just the beginning uh, uh, of of much social upheaval. Um, And it's sad. Uh, It's not not a story that we are happy to be read about. Um, We would much rather uh, be standing here today being accused of alarmism when we first started writing about fertilizer a year ago. Unfortunately, uh, we underestimated the nature of the crisis, uh, if anything. So I wish you good luck, Klaus. I mean, um, and God bless you, you know, farmers are the heart of society. And um, I suspect that um, much of the Western world uh, is going to learn that lesson uh, pretty quickly and pretty thoroughly.
9: Yeah, thanks, Dunberg. Uh, since we're in like a kind of a death spiral here and uh, it's still August and nice and warm outside and uh, uh, Yeah. The problems are gonna get ten times worse in in the winter, and uh, I wouldn't say excited, but uh, yeah, it's gonna be a um, interesting winter for sure for uh, for for Europe, especially.
1: Well, um, I, I I will pray for you, Klaus. Even though I'm an atheist.
9: <laughs> Thanks, man. I mean, I'm good, man. Like like we we I got firewood, and we run on an <laughs> organic farm, so we don't use fertilizers or pesticides, but. I'm more concerned about the society around me than than my personal well-being. So, yeah. well,
1: hopefully, our articles on preparedness um, helped you uh, with your with your planning for the upcoming winter.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thank you. All right. Next question is uh, Dahl. Wen. Uh, I'm adding you, Dahl, as a speaker, and again, just make sure you unmute yourself. Um, and uh, the floor is yours, Dahl. Uh,
6: thank you. So thank you, Brandon Doomberg, for hosting this space. It's very interesting. Uh, so first I want to share something about the drought in China because you, you guys talked about it earlier. And I'm from Sichuan province, basically the epicenter of the drought and the even though I right now I live in Germany. So the Sichuan province, so it's very heavy on hydro, just like Norway. It's 80% hydro. It be, Uh, Because of it used to be an energy exporter to other provinces, but this year the Mm -hmm. drought is very severe to the point that hydro is cut for 50%. On the other hand, the demand for air conditioning went sky high to the point basically the government essentially have to shut down industry for 10 days to make sure there's enough electricity for everybody who wants air conditioning. But right now, the worst has passed. So in the last few days, they have lots of rain. So to the point in some places, they have to deal with floods now. So the worst has passed. And also another silver lining of the crisis is that actually this would probably accelerate the process of building up more nuclear is especially inland nuclear because so far all the nuclear power plants China has built on the coast. The inland nuclear has been on the pipeline, but it's like but uh, no, but actually has been slowed down ever since the Japanese nuclear accident, but they are restarting it and uh, I expect them many of them will be moving to the building pipeline rather quickly.
1: yeah this uh, that's great news. i the one concern that I have out of China and i'm I'm sure um, maybe you would be uncomfortable addressing it is this um, dynamic covid zero policy and and uh, especially coming up with the with the party Congress in october. and so uh, but it is good news to hear that um, perhaps the the worst of the drought is over and um, and uh, so yes, I uh, thank you for, for uh, bringing in from Germany because I was wondering how it would be that you could get on Twitter uh, from <laughs> from China yeah, but, yeah so.
6: Okay. Thanks. So yes, the zero Thank COVID is, it's crazy, but uh, we all don't know how would that would end. It's like yeah. it's just uh, it's political. It has nothing to do with public with, health. Yes, but.
1: indeed. <laughs> um, I have I have many friends in China and uh, used to travel to the country four times a year for, for the better part of a decade. So um, I have very very positive feelings for the Chinese people and um, and uh, it's certainly an interesting time uh, in the country.
6: Yeah. So after sharing all this from China, so I also also want to ask you the, my question. So my question is: So what do you think about uh, what role ESG has played? Do you uh, for kind of contributing to this energy crisis? Do you think, uh, on the other hand, do you think uh, ESG has uh, played any positive role in? addressing climate concerns as it's claimed to. So basically my question is, do you think, can it be reformed or it's beyond redemption?
1: Um, so I would say that uh, by and large, the ESG movement has been destructive to human progress without mm-hmm. delivering any meaningful um, improvement to the environmental uh, outlook for the planet. Um, And and why do I say that? Um, The ESG movement is more political than scientific. Um, And so um, in many of our pieces, you'll note that we don't actually take a firm position on climate change, quote unquote. Um, We just take it as an axiom that the world has decided it is important to arrange our economy while optimizing uh, or minimizing the number of carbon emissions um, that we are producing. Fine. We'll take that as an axiom. Um, there are ways to do that um scientifically. And they pass through, you know, again, the things we've outlined, um, systematically yeah. replacing coal with natural gas and uh, investing in nuclear power and um pivoting away from full battery electric to plug-in hybrid vehicles and um you know, using our bountiful supply of natural gas in North America to produce polysilicon mm-hmm. if solar is going to be a big part of our uh, of our future. Um and then, uh, and again, like many people on sort of the, I would say, the conservative part of, of the energy space, wonder why we um, support solar um, in its current form. You know, there's so many drawbacks, but at the same time, the amount of of energy that pounds the Earth every day from the sun is more than enough to power the entire planet, and that bounty is worth investigating. Technology is worth developing. The industry is worth supporting. Uh, for those reasons, for that reason alone. Uh, but I would say, by and large. Um, ESG, through its defund primary energy movement in particular, um, uh, is taking a terrible path to its claimed goal. And as we've said many times, the path function matters. And um, they're at risk of losing an entire generation, uh, losing credibility with an entire generation if the crisis that we see unfolding in Europe and, and in parts of Asia gets bad enough. Um, if, the developed world, if the developing world um, suffers as badly as we think they will when we export all this inflation. And so on and so on. Um, they risk becoming a generational villain. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say um, there's not much I can think about. And and the hypocrisy of the ESG movement is is the governance part um, in particular. You know, as long as you bathe yourself uh, in words like renewable and natural and sustainable, you can get away with all manner get away with all manner of corporate malfeasance because you're quote unquote good and on the team. Um, and many grifters have taken advantage of this opening, uh, sadly. Yes. Uh, so, to me, no. I would say, uh, in aggregate, the ESG movement has been a calamity for human flourishing and um, and has done next to nothing for the environment.
6: Thank you. Wish I had something I, better to say. <laughs> I want to say, actually, I'm... I'm a freelance researcher and activist working on climate. I have to say, unfortunately, I largely agree. <laughs> it's like, uh, because my specialty is China, because, but actually I basically, I would say a large amount of work, it's like, of my work is really largely to kind of to educate the young Chinese, don't fall into their traps. We really need to look, to, look into science instead of, of these narratives.
1: Yeah. Um, and and I, I would say um, China um, is, is doing many things correctly. Um, the 150 odd reactors at various stages of planning, um, but um, you know, they were victim. China is desperately short energy, right? And so. Um, yeah,
6: we, we, take, we take energy security very, very seriously because my yeah. generation, we grow up without winter heating. And the with very frequent blackouts, we know energy. Security is very serious. We don't take yeah. the, we don't take the success of industrialization for granted. I think that's one of the problem. Many Westerners take it for granted.
1: Yeah, they've never they've never lived a life of scarcity, which we're all about to experience. So yeah, appreciate the question. Good luck, um, and um, hopefully your participation doesn't get you uh, stopped on your way back into China. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> all right. Next question comes from Grateful Papa Three. Grateful, I'm going to add you uh, as a speaker, and I would say we're going to cap this at four o'clock, so we got about 20 minutes. Um, and uh, so, if you've got any questions, just make sure you know you're you're staying in the queue. But uh, grateful, Papa, you are clear to go. Grateful, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so, let's say one believes in. Uh, scenario that you're describing how does someone prep in terms of investment and
2: in terms of like lifestyle as q4 comes around
1: um so we're big into the preparedness mindset um, not ashamed to say that you know the prerogative term is prepper um, it's not an insult to us um, our belief is that preparedness starts at home and that um it's okay to, um, you know, the, the the mental model that we use is, is my home is a factory. um, And the product of my factory is the health and well being of my family. Um, And uh, my, my factory, like any other factories has consumables, Um, it has inputs, it has outputs. Um, I I jokingly, we jokingly wrote in a piece that, you know um, my factory uh, at home has four inputs, which is um, electricity water, natural gas, and goods and services, you know, think Amazon man, um, and it has two outputs. It has um, sewage and garbage, um, and um, to the extent that you view your, your home as a sort of factory, um, uh, our advice is to um, plan for losing any or all of those six services um, for some period of time. What would you do um, in those circumstances? Um, and then um, increase the working capital that you've allocated uh, to the inventory of, of uh, consumables that your factory goes through uh, on a given day. And if, if you just audit the operation of your home for a week or two um, and get baseline data on the things that you consume for the health and well-being of your family, and then just um, increase the budget of them, you know, have them in the pantry, have them in a storage room somewhere. Um, you don't need to go crazy. Um, but we view um, investment in the consumables of the things that are needed to operate our home and then perhaps investing in a bit of preparedness should we lose one of those um, six inputs or outputs um, as prudent, as uh, an expression of love uh, for our family. Um, love my children deeply um, in a time of crisis. I don't want to see them go without. And it's okay to allocate a small amount of your money um, towards um both hedging against tail risk in this case, but also, frankly, is a hedge against inflation. You know, um, The analogy that we use is um, if you're a homeowner in the United States, um, you're probably paying 1000 or $1,500 a year for um, home insurance. And um, At the end of the year, when your home hasn't burned down, um, you're not begrudging the $1,500 you spent to insure it. You're happy your house didn't burn down. Um, think about increasing the working capital of the consumables you need to operate your home um, as a similar investment to insuring the home um, if you own your own home. And and so that's our mindset. Um, preparedness starts at home. When you have um, the ability and the confidence that you could um, lock all your doors and persist for 30 or 45 days while the rest of society falls apart, uh, that's a pretty strong foundation from which to project uh, forward uh, as we head through turbulent time. So I'm not sure if that's the answer we're, you were looking for, <laughs> uh, Grateful Dad. But as a Grateful Dad myself, um, you know, I, I sort of view, view my responsibilities through that lens.
2: Thanks for your time. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Next question comes from Chee- Cheesy Synapse. Cheesy Synapse, I'm going to add you as a speaker. We got about 15 minutes, so I'm trying to get through everybody. Um, So, Cheesy, go ahead. The floor is yours.
2: All right. Sorry about that, Cheesy. Yes, I am. Can you hear me?
8: Yep. All right. Sorry. Um, Doomberg, you're awesome. Thank you so much for all the content that you put out. You know, I'm just getting a little frustrated. Call it political idiocy. Um, I, I think it's much, much deeper than that. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just call it McCarthy Cone 2024. That's what we need because we have a cold or a soft malice revolution going on all over the Western world. Um, you look at our education. You look at the recent Supreme Court justice that was nominated. She can't even define what a woman is. And ESG itself is Lysenkoism. Uh, through and through. Um, so I think we need to be clear-minded um, about the threat that we face. And I just basically went your comments on that.
1: Yeah, we try to um, stay as apolitical as we can and focus more on ideology. Um, and from an ideological perspective, we are pro-human, pro-energy, pro-capitalism, pro-freedom, pro-property rights. Um, all of those things are under attack. There's no question about it and the mechanism of um, re-equilibrating um, uh, is going to be interesting to watch. It's not clear to us that it can be done uh, through standard political means, which is unfortunate. It doesn't bode well um, when you are forced to take apolitical action or non-traditional action. It's more a statement of the weakness of the institutions um, and the eroding of the institutions of a country. Uh, we're going to run the experiment first in Europe um, this year because they're on uh, an accelerated um, timetable. Um, but um, we prefer to be ideologues, um, not partisans and um, and to um, and when you're an ideologue uh, and, and not a partisan, then um, your writing and your content um, has a, uh, a sort of consistency to it because you don't have to. Uh, shapeshift your beliefs to support the the team that you're on on any particular day. So I would say, um, uh, obviously, we sort of lean conservative, um, and, but I would say Mitch McConnell's a disaster as the head of the Senate, you know, um, and um, indistinguishable from from uh, the other sort of corporate politicians in, in the swamp of of, of Washington D.C. Um, and so, uh, and, and uh, it just is It's, it's unfortunate. Um, but we, we, we are not um, political actors. Uh, we we don't uh, engage in, in that line of um, of that uh, of work. There are many others who do and do so effectively and on both sides. And God bless them. Uh, but that's not really a domain that we uh, we ourselves into. We much prefer to um, stick to the things we know a fair bit about and to write from a, a, a ideological perspective, not a partisan one. Awesome.
0: All right. Next question. Let's get with Daniel Andrew uh, at Daniel and me. Daniel, I am adding you as a speaker. Uh, There's like a little bit of a delay. So, um, Andrew, whenever you uh, get this, uh, just go ahead and unmute
7: yourself and ask your question. Oh, sorry. Here we go. Hey, uh, Brandon, thanks a lot for holding the space here in Doomberg. Big fan of your content. Uh, I just wanted to um, let people know they may know already, but George Noble and Dr. Noss are having a space tomorrow. One of the topics is on drought, so people might want to tune into that. Uh, Doomberg, I had a question uh, to see if you had any uh, further thoughts on uh, you've, you've written and tweeted about a little bit on how uh, you think that uh, one of the reasons why OPEC and the Saudis had uh, talked about reducing production was to drive out some of the manipulation that might be in the, uh, in the paper market in oil. Uh, just wanted to see if you had any further thoughts on that. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, great question. And I, and I think um, <clears throat> that actually got, uh, so I, we get a lot of DMS, right. And um, <clears throat> we get a lot of DMS from people that are anonymous that are in, you know, various positions at various Wall Street firms um, and over time, you get to get a sense for um, for the validity of the people sending you the DMs and and the sources become sort of more trusted over time, even if you don't know them. And um, one source was feeding our DMs with their prediction that, um, quote unquote, the Fed was going to intervene in the futures market and energy in a big way. Um, and in, in particular, they had predicted... Um, uh, <laughs> that uh, they would do so in the natural gas market uh, in particular. And, and then in the days that followed that tip, um, we did see a sort of smash down in prices that um, anybody who's traded precious metals is familiar with in the early hours of the morning. Um, you know, you see that sort of 8.30 a.m. Uh, smash down in the gold price. Um, and so, you know, not to get too conspiratorial, um, but um, that was in the back of our mind uh, when we uh, read about um, and investigated the comments of, of the Saudis um, talking about, quote, volatility in the paper markets, um, which we took as code for uh, manipulation in the paper markets. Um, and so we took um, the Saudi um, stance as a shot across the bow. Um, uh, and um, you saw oil sort of have a nice little run up um, immediately after that. Uh, but we shall see. I mean, um, you know, people if, the peop- if pe- people think that um the powers that be don't uh, routinely um, participate in the markets to try to put their thumb on the scale. I think they're just being naive. Uh, whether it's actually happening, happening in the moment uh, in the energy markets is, is obviously, we'll have to wait to find out. But um, there is a, a growing disconnect between the paper prices and the physical prices. You know, We put a tweet out a few weeks ago that the price of oil is what Saudi charges for it, um, not what traders trade for it. Um, so, but that's a slippery slope. You know, what other prices on your Bloomberg don't you believe? Um, but uh, I do think that uh, I believe the price of oil is, is an accurate reflection of, of the market flows, um, that one wonders um, who is causing the flow, I guess is, is probably the best way to say it.
7: Great. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Next question comes from Chris Georgia D2. Chris, I'm adding you as a speaker, and we got about nine minutes left, so give or take maybe one to three more speakers. Um, Chris, go
2: ahead. Hey, guys. Hey, Duneberg. I was actually on the spaces yesterday with Mike. Um, there was just a question surrounding your views on agriculture. A lot of the spaces recently have been tackling more energy. I've read your piece on agriculture. believe it completely. Uh, temporary kind of with the, the Peter Zihon views. I think this month will be kind of interesting just to see what we're actually going to get initial data coming out with regards to what kind of ag coming out. And it, I guess my view is if Germany is going to be okay, which is a common consensus narrative these days with regards to energy, a lot of that energy that they've sourced has been coming from East Asia, some of the, the developing nations, and that's the same locations that struggle for ag inputs and then energy required for the agricultural sector. just wanted to hear your, your views on that coming up in the next month or so.
1: So you kind of think of it as squeezing a balloon, right? So if Germany is able to squeeze the balloon, it's just going to expand it uh, on the other side. And so um, there's only so many molecules to go around. And um, we said uh, all the way back on our first podcast appearance with Dimitri on Hidden Forces, um, you know, what's the price elasticity of demand and who can afford to pay it? Well, the clearing price of life is currently being set by relatively wealthy Western Europeans. So that's why you see you know, seventy-five dollar per million BTU Dutch CTF natural gas today, which is off the highs of almost a hundred a few days ago, and seems like a relief. But there's almost no countries in the world that can afford seventy-five dollar per million BTU natural gas. Um, Pakistan, you know, pick your favorite. Um, that natural gas that Germany is pulling off the market um, had previously been going somewhere else for much cheaper prices, um, and so. The sort of collateral damage, both in energy and ag, uh, is going to be huge. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, when you're in a period of chronic shortage, every burp um, is a barf. <laughs> Pardon me. You know, like, it's a big deal. And um, and so, you know, what are the crop yields going to be in North America? And um, what about South America? Uh, you know, if, if there's floods uh, during, you know, rice harvest. just it, Every little hiccup now becomes a giant echo. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, we shall see. I mean, it, it, until we can pull ourselves out of the energy scarcity regime, um, ag is just a solid form of energy, a particularly important one. Clean water is just a solid form of energy or liquid form of energy and, and a particularly important one. Um, the things that are the inputs into the factory that I just described earlier for the prepping question, Um these are, uh, these are all basically manifestations of energy, which is the ultimate currency. Um, and so as long as we're in this situation where our political leaders are on serious and um, they're flapping the, their, their wings of platitude, um driving 70 miles an hour into the hard wall of physics, um, we're going to, to be in such circumstances where um, the slightest perturbations in one side of the world end up with people starving on the other.
2: Yeah, my, my ultimate issue here, my ultimate concern is with energy, you can ration, you can reduce, you can lower the thermostat, you can increase the thermostat, uh, you, can, you can do a variety of things to kind of modulate. When you start getting into the agricultural space, it's not, the elasticity there becomes even more of a concern. And Nine meals later, people will do pretty crazy things to ensure that they, they find another meal for their little ones, their loved ones and themselves.
1: 100%. Nine meals to crazy is a phrase we, we say all the time. And it's true. Um, most people have no working capital. And um, we'll, the path from comfort to horde uh, is, is a short one. Thanks,
0: guys. Awesome. Well, I think I'm going to wrap it up here, Doomberg. Um We went over. I was actually just going to do an hour at first, but we just kind of kept rolling. So um, thanks again so much, uh, Doomberg for giving us you know, over an hour and a half or over an hour of your time. Um, I love the idea of adding on to our uh podcast discussion and 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 gathering questions from from listeners or people that may not have listened to the podcast, but just wanted to get your feedback on things yeah. that you've written. So um thanks again so much. And you know, if you want to leave anybody with with some parting words um before we wrap up, yeah. uh the floor is yours.
1: Last thing I would say is look for a space announcement. Um Friday afternoon is scheduled we'll see um 3 p.m. Grant Williams is going to host a space with myself. Um, Luke Roman and uh, Marco Popic on uh, what the, f- the future holds for Europe and the energy crisis. And I think that's going to be a great one Friday afternoon at 3 PM. I think it'll be announced tomorrow.
0: There you go. Awesome. Thanks everyone for asking the questions. Doomberg, thanks again for being a great guest and co-host. Um, and I will release this as a podcast this week. It's also recorded on Twitter spaces so you can uh, listen to it if you missed any parts of it, but have a great rest of your week guys. Um, and uh, enjoy the good weather where you are, and uh, hope you guys are safe and doing well. So thanks again, everyone, and uh, I'm signing off.
1: Thanks, Brian. See ya.
0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by SP Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive.